Chingila Yumom Chingiwala to our podcast series Custodial Care. My name is Eleanor Bancroft. I'm a proud Bundjalung woman with blood ties to Scotland and Poland, speaking to you from Bundjalung country. And my name is Kiralee Dawn, and I am a proud Barkindji woman, also living here on Bundjalung country. And we are presenting conversations about custodial care. This season, we are focusing on the 2022 floods of Lismore. And these are the stories of the Koorimau Flood Hub and the volunteers who help support and rebuild our community. So I'm Kiralee Dawn and I'm joined here today with Amarina Toby. Did you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hello. I'm Amarina Toby and I am a Bundjalung woman and I also have ties to the Gungaloo Nation. And I'm also here with Jalu, who is a newborn, if you hear those sounds in the background. Yeah, Bobby's here. So we might hear him join us in all kinds of little ways and... It's so special to have him with you, with us here too. I think it's also a beautiful start to 2023 to bring in this whole new energy with new life, especially after everything that we've all been through during 2022. Yeah. And he was conceived during the flood recovery work too, (laughs) so it's really nice to come full circle and get to see him here being fed in the studio with us. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about, go back to the 28th of Feb when the floods first hit Lismore. Where were you? What were you doing when the floods first happened? Well, extremely tired is what I was because we had actually started packing up um, some of the businesses in Lismore on the Friday. And packing up the businesses because they given some warning? Yeah, so we had received a bit of warning that there might be, you know, floods. We didn't know to what extent. And I had a business, an Indigenous art gallery in one of the arcades in Lismore. And we had a couple of long-term locals who were a little bit paranoid that this flood was going to happen on the weekend, maybe before the predicted times. And so some of the businesses had packed up on the Friday. And so I had boxed up everything in the gallery because we don't operate on the weekends. And so it was just in case if we did need to um, evac. And so I helped a couple of the businesses then. And then on the Saturday, helped a couple more businesses sort of just get flood ready. Not necessarily take everything out of the town yet, but to be prepared. And then on that Sunday, we got the call at... 5.30 in the morning that people were going to start doing a full business evac and taking everything up the hill. And so we started that at 6 on the Sunday morning and worked all the way through the day. My business only took three hours to pack up, but then we started going, you know, door to door, checking all the other businesses in the arcade that they were packed into their utes and their trucks and that they were able to leave the town and then going down the street. And we ended up spending about 14 hours on that day packing up all of the businesses and this is you guys going from like moving your stuff up high to being like okay we gotta move our stuff up the hill out of the place altogether it's definitely a combination so i had flood storage in the town which a lot of businesses do um and that's usually on the second and third floor of a lot of the buildings because some of the old buildings which are about 120 years old are built above any preconceived idea of how high a flood can go and so 
my flood storage was in the Starcourt Arcade, which has in the theatre on the second floor, which has never gone under. And a lot of the buildings on Moldworth Street have never seen water into their second floor because of how high those floors and ceilings are. And yes, everything was packed up on that Sunday, the 27th. And then it was early in that morning, about 3am on the 28th, when the floodwaters ended up peaking. And a lot of our friends who had cameras in their shops said that, you know, around the 1am mark, you know, the cameras just blacked out. And so that's cameras that are up on their ceilings. And so we knew that the waters were already at a height that they had never seen before. And so that was just devastating to know that we're up on the hill. We had taken, um, you know, expensive canvas works of artists up onto the hill, but there was a lot of stock that we had in the shop small pieces like books, ceramics, um, clothing lines, all of that that we had in our flood storage that we just already knew were gone. And so then there was nothing that we could do on that the actual day of the 28th, like once the sun rose, you know, we went to the lookout in Lismore Heights and you looked over the town and it was just completely under. Um, what could you see from up there? Just so much water. <laughs> that we had never seen before in our lives really like from there you could see that it was up at the square which is if you walk from the river is about maybe like a 10-15 minute walk from the river hmm. so to know that it's already gone that far yeah and so how long did it take for the waters to start to recede like where you're able to access the town again and start having a look at the damage that's been done. Yeah, so because Lismore is built in that floodplain, um, the town gets divided by some of the canals that are, you know, designed to help drain out the water. But because it was so high up, that definitely took a lot longer. And then, you know, tides affect the river, the Wilson, which is attached to the Richmond River. Um, so it did seem like it took a bit longer and I guess with the large volume of water as well. So the Monday, that was the flood day, March the 1st, it was still, the town was still divided. It wasn't able to get in. So it wasn't until the 2nd that we actually went in and, um, drove down into the town. There was still water across all of the roads, but it was low enough that you could get a vehicle through. Um, I mean, I wasn't keen on walking through the waters because you just don't know what's in there, what's been washed down. Um, one of my friends was on the boats and she'd been sending videos the whole time of what the town looked like. And we did know one of the petrol stations had actually like erupted with the tanks underneath. So we just knew that like some of the suburbs weren't safe to walk through because there was petrol in the water, there was sewage in the water, there was all sorts of debris. Um, so it was the second that we came into town and me and my housemate and a couple of friends that live near us um, walked through the arcade where my um, shop was and it was just wild to see the damage that was done, the, the amount of mud and sludge through everything. And so my shop is on Molesworth Street, which is the same shop as Curry Mail. And I, you know, at the time I've been working here for a couple of years, so I had some hours with them. So we decided to take a walk down to Curry Mail and, you know, see how it fared because we are 
this building is on the riverbanks. And we got down and it was just, there's massive glass window frontage of this building and that was just completely smashed out. And all of the actual editorial, you know, like tables, chairs, computers, all of the the furniture, the, the fittings of the building was like out on the street and it was like blocking the window and there was just shards of glass everywhere. And so my housemate actually sort of like, you know, cleared away the glass and knocked out the window properly so that we were able to step through. And I rang up Naomi and I said, hey, we're down in town. Do you want to see photos of what is going on at Kurimao? Like, you know, what's left after this devastation? And she was like, no, I don't want to see it at all. And then she, you know, paused and was like, actually, you know, you're going to have to send me those photos. Like, I have to actually know and, you know, insurance needs these photos. And, um, yeah, so we walked through and took photos of everything. And it was just, yeah, it was a sight and never seen, could never imagine. It's like stepping onto another world. You know, everything's been thrown around. All of the insulation is like ripped out of the ceiling you know, you got um, panels from the roof hanging down. Um, yeah, it's just like, you know, it looked like a cyclone had hit inside the building and obviously, you know, just the power of the water and the turbulence of the water, that's what it was. We were, um, you know, you had to push through a lot of desks. There was like the inner walls were sort of smashed out and like collapsed in on themselves and so... There was definitely a few spaces that were like, oh, we shouldn't go through that room because like the electrical wiring was down. We didn't even know if like that was had a live current through it or anything. Um, and then we came upstairs to the second floor of Mail, and you could see how high the flood had made it um, because it just left this layer of mud on the building and on the stairs. And so it was only um, just off the top of my memory, like three stairs down from the second floor like that's how close it got to like getting into second floor and luckily it didn't because that's where we had stored all the computers and the hard drives and the podcast studio which is still here standing so it was very close yeah because these waters how high did they get it was 14 and a half meters so yeah being on that river bank definitely saw the full extent of that flood yeah and because the Koori Mill office building too, it's right there on the flood levee. Yeah. Literally overlooking the levee that ended up breaking for that water to get that high into the town. So from being the first in the building, starting to clear out some of the rubble, how did the Koori Mill flood hub start? What do you remember was the first the first sort of action that you and Nay took? Yeah, so the second is when we went into the building and then the third, we still weren't, it wasn't really safe to like come into town. And so um, the third was more just like calling around to different communities, calling different Indigenous organisations and, you know, calling fam family members and extended fam family and checking in on them. And seeing sort of where everyone else was at in the community. And then it was also on that day, the third. So that's when we started 
reaching out to those communities and yourself and Ella had actually been doing a bit of work up in Mullum and I think you had some boxes of food supplies and, you know, like sanity items and sanity, sanitary? Sanitary. (laughs) I mean, we probably need sanity items after the flood anyway. (laughs) I need some sanity items. So yeah, Ella and I were in Mullum and I remember we... We started yarning on Instagram and we were like, um, what do you need? Because Mullum was pretty well resourced. People were able to get into Mullum and it already started like heaps and heaps of donations. And then Ella and I were like, right, we're going to take whatever we can fit in the car and bring it out to you. Yeah, so by that afternoon we had heard that Wardell was still cut off by the floods because they're on the Richmond River and the tides were affecting that. And so it had already been a couple of days then, so from the 28th until the 3rd. And then those floodwaters ended up affecting those communities for about another 10 days, just with consistent king high tides. So Cabbage Tree Island, Wardell, Western Ballina, like all of them were affected for ages. So on the 3rd, you guys came out from Mullum with the supplies you did have and we ended up doing a run down to Wardell and some of the locals who were living there met us on one side of the water and they weren't too sure if your car was going to get through but we, you know, we didn't have enough space to put it in their car so we just ended up following closely behind them and I know like me and my housemate were piled into the back of your vehicle because my housemate's car couldn't go through the yeah, water. I think you guys were in the booth. Yeah. With the supplies. Half <laughs> full of donations. And then I remember there was a giant fireys truck sitting there at the same crossing. Oh, yeah. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> I remember. Because <laughs> we were sitting there looking at this flood water and thinking, are we going to get across or not? And we're all sitting there being like, okay, how are we going to do it? And those locals were like, we'll drive in front and we were going to come behind. Yeah. And there was a big fiery truck sitting there. And they hadn't gotten orders that they were allowed to cross. Oh, okay. And that truck sat there and watched us. <laughs> <laughs> and we ended up having drive two, through. <laughs> two crossings because there was that first low part and then um, there was a second causeway that we had to go through. Yeah, it was sketchy. Yeah. And so, yeah, arriving into that, you know, that street. And um, one of the aunties down there was our point of contact and she ended up being very helpful in the rest of the recovery, you know, being able to get us in contact with different people who need support. But yeah, we were able to drop off the food there. And because it was already, it was dusk when we first went through those waters, so we couldn't stay very long. And she ended up distributing the food through those streets to the families that needed it and to the elderly and all of that. And then, yeah, we had to take our leave because by the time we were on the return trip, it was already dark and it was just too dangerous because we also were told that the tide was changing. So it was coming back in. So we had to make sure that we were out pretty quickly um so yeah that's the third and then on the fourth which is the friday we turned up to curry mail and you know we'd already made all those calls around to community so we sort of were okay let's go down let's do you know some clean up at curry mail itself because we sort of have an idea of who needs help in the community and we rocked up there it was me my housemate naomi some of her nieces and some of her cousins and mel ladkin turned up that morning as well and um we were just standing at the front actually waiting for a couple of the uncles to get down so that they could you know help us with more of the you know the 
dangerous side of things to make sure re- you know there wasn't a live current going through the electricity and some of the larger pieces of furniture and some of the glass so were just waiting there and this farmer actually drove by and he, he had a whole tray full of bananas. They were all boxes of bananas that were from his farm that had been damaged in the storm and so he couldn't sell them at market and I mean there was no market for the next few months anyway um, and so he said, hey, do you ladies want a box of bananas? And we were like, oh, yeah, sure. Like, we weren't too sure, like, what we were going to do with these bananas. But we found a table that was under, like, a trestle table under Karoo Mail, and we put it there. And, yeah, Marquee appeared from somewhere. I don't remember where it where it came from, but we put that over the table. And then, um, yeah, we were still just waiting there for a little bit, and there was a couple of locals that, you know, from North or South Lismore, which is just on the other side of the river from Karoo Mail, I th- yeah, they came by and they were like, oh, these bananas for free. Can we have a banana? Like, we haven't had any food for a while. Um, and we're like, yeah, yeah, take some, take what you need. And, yeah, so I remember someone after that actually came down and I think they had about, like, two loaves of bread. And they said, oh, can I have a bunch of your bananas and I'll leave some bread with you? So they left, like, a loaf of bread. And that's honestly how it started. Like, people were bringing what they had and then they saw that we had some stuff and then, you know, like this trade and barter sort of situation. But, I mean, not that we were looking to sell anything, but like, <laughs> you know. Swapping resources. Yeah. And I love this because so much of what happened, I think, over the next few months was by chance. It was by like random people showing up and I've got a marquee. I've got a box of bananas. Yeah, yeah. I've got a truck. <laughs> <laughs> So we've got a table, a box of bananas, a couple loaves of bread. And I know that the roads have started opening up now between Mullum, like Byron, out to Lismore, things like that. And so do you remember from there who it was who started showing up next and when it was that the services started showing up? Well, actually, the first service if you want to give them that title, was actually Coles. I'm just going through my photos. And so it we was. had so we had the box of bananas and then there was a couple of people who came down who were from like Lismore Heights and Ganelabar. So we, you know, out of the flood zone, were sitting up on the hill and they dropped off. They said, hey, we've got all this excess like bed linen, like we just don't know where to take it. And because there was already a bit of a crowd of people collecting because, you know, out of us, Guri mob, there was like five of us around, six or so. And and so when people come by, they're like, oh, maybe these people know what's up. Like, here's a group of people having a yarn. Um, and the next people that came was Coles. And it was the manager of Coles is a local lady. And she's been here her whole life. And her family's from Lismore. And so she's been through multiple floods. And she was in her truck and she just had bottles and bottles of those 15 litre water bottles and she said hey you know like we don't have running water in Lismore at the moment and so it's like it's not clean like it's being contaminated we don't know like you know if the sewage is in it or anything and so she came down she said hey can I leave some water with you guys um you know I know that Mail already does a lot of community stuff and I know that and she said, I know that a lot of Guru Mob are probably going to come here um, because they know this is where it's safe. Um, and we said, oh, well, wh- what what do we need to do? Like, do we need, like, to 
pay or something because we haven't dealt with coals in this way before and she's like no no like this is my section of coals I manage this area I just want to donate this water like I just want to leave it here and for you to give it out to community and so that was amazing and that you know started a partnership with coals like it was a local branch and so we were able to say hey these places and these towns need these resources what capacity do you have to like fulfill these orders to be able to get water or tin goods out and yeah and so they were actually really helpful over the coming months as well um and yeah so it was at that same time that the army rolled into town and so this is the the friday around lunchtime and the army came into town and they parked next to us because next to curry mound near the pump station is this massive sort of car park area and so there's space for their trucks to go and you know a couple of the brigades got out and we said to them hey can you help us unload this Coles truck like there's about 60 bottles of 15 litre water there's only like a few of us here and um, the army actually said we'll have to check with our supervisor and we were like, we're just getting bottles of water out. Like, can you just help us? Like, because the Coles lady has to go elsewhere. Um, and that fellow went away and he spoke to his supervisor. And he actually came back and he said, oh, sorry, we can't help you. And that was actually what, you know, our community and the other communities heard for the next few days. And it wasn't until the Monday that we found out, um, mainly because none of us have been to the army, so we don't know what their systems are like, but we found out on the Monday that the army can't take initiative to do things. They can't, you know, they don't have that autonomy to think for themselves and to, you know, just see someone who needs help and do it. They have to wait for their direct supervisor and their line order to give them the instructions to act. Yeah. And this is something we experienced a lot in those days was the army presence like them standing there, but not necessarily able to help us do things. Yeah, and that ended up with a lot of anger in community. Like, not just from mob, but like from all of Lismore community. And you saw it as well in the Mullumshire, you know, there was a lot of viral things that went around on social media that I'm sure a lot of you have seen of, you know, the army staging photos, um, you know, staging, helping community and, you know, sending those photos back. I mean, I remember one of the first times I saw them here too, they were stationed like right opposite the Corey Mound doing a photo shoot with the big, what are they called? Like the big um, white flash. Yeah, they had a a full lighting set up. Yeah, lighting set up. Like they brought a photo shoot with them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Photographers and... Yeah. Yeah, so I think that was very triggering for a lot of people. Like people who were still in shock and, you know, it's all of... I mean, for starters, there was the problem with the whole orders from the government to the SES were incorrect. And so it was so many local people who were doing the personal home evacs with the, you know, the tinny army. And then now we've had like the mud army, like it's all grassroots led and all community led. And so to have these massive government organizations come into town and not even be given direct orders for the first three days, like surely 
the flood has already happened a week ago. Surely the government knows that we need immediate help. So maybe send down your government organisations with orders instead of having them here for three days and us waiting. And, you know, it's not that we expect help from them or rely on them, but it's the fact that they are supposed to offer that help. And so all of these people who are in a heightened state and, you know, don't even have a roof over their heads, don't have any food, don't have any power, like, yeah, they want the help. They're looking to their leaders for support, but their leaders are the people who are in the community. Yeah, and you're right, it was the community who was, like we were saying before, you know, every day at this time, I'm really just talking about every single day felt like a week Yeah. of how many different things sort of happened within the scope of 12, 14, 16 hours. Yeah, so, like, from when I first rang Naomi about, you know, photos of the building, we then set up, you know, a group chat on our social media with some of the people who were staff in Kurimao, some of the community members here, some people who had contacts with, you know, the missions and the communities that were further out, you know, in a bit more remote Bunjalung regions. And we had to set up that group chat. We had to set up a new chat every single day because so much was happening each day. So much was changing. So it would be change either with who needs support, um, which services can help us, um, the amount of donations that we had and where to direct them to, um, who needs to be contacted. And so... Because at this point, the donations also had started to come in by yeah. car, by road, from yeah. different places as well. And I remember we asked the army if they could rip the doors off the bottom of the basement so that we could start storing these bottles of water and these other donations that had started coming in. Um, they couldn't help do that, but (laughs) some brothers with a youth did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's all very grassroots. And we were also seeing what communities were able to be accessed as well, right? Because it was like... Every day we'll find out, okay, which roads are open again, which ones are down by landslides. Yeah, everything was definitely by word of mouth, like, you know, calling around to people, knowing who was sort of like, I guess you could say, the spokesperson for each town and who you could ring in that town who had gone out and checked the roads. Okay, can we get food out to Kunga yet? Can we get food out to Kwangula yet? You know, is the access to Kairigul open? Can we get out to... Gundarimba, like, you know, what's happening? Are the tides coming back in and affecting the coastal communities? So, yeah, everything was word of mouth. And then also social media, like, it was such a big, it's one of those times where technology is like a literal lifesaver. And we had a few of the politicians showing up too in the early days, I remember, with their <laughs> cameras as well. I feel like that's a <laughs> massive joke. Like, when the Prime Minister showed up, they cleared Molesworth Street because it was on his route of, you know, his tour of Lismore. Like when he stopped at, um, was it the university, I think? He literally yeah. had to have security. Because he didn't come here. No. It, so Kurimao was potentially on his, you know, list of places to see, but he didn't end up stopping here. So he went to the university. He needed security because Lismore was so angry with you know, the lack of response, all of the debacle with, you know, um, weather predictions and SES call-outs and just the, yeah, the response time 
Like one of the things that happened really early on was there was some islanders that helped clean up Lismore, which was phenomenal. But they got in the first couple of days and they went really hard and they just emptied out a lot of the businesses. And sadly that happened here and that was borderline helpful, but also a little bit problematic because some of the editorial team was, you know, they live outside of Lismore and they were flooded in or there was landslides so they couldn't make it here. So when they got here, everything from inside Mount had already been emptied out onto the street for when the council does come and clear up, which was probably about two months later. But it didn't happen for it didn't, ages. Like, in general, it didn't happen for ages. But so that there's items that the editorial team would have loved to go through to see if they could salvage, but it was too late because it was on the street and it was still raining and so there was a lot of damage done. And there was a few things that probably could have been salvaged that were ended up being lost. Um, I mean, we lost... Our Albert Namajira piece, we don't know if that was in the pile that could have been salvaged or we don't know if it just washed away. Um, but when the Prime Minister came, Molesworth Street was on his route to drive along. And so that one of the mornings, the council got down here really early and they just cleared the whole street. And so, I mean, that's great that we now have like space to like set up our flood relief hub because it's been cleared of rubbish. But our editorial team didn't have time to go through and salvage everything. And then the Prime Minister never even ended up coming down here. So they've <laughs> cleared away all this stuff and f- for no reason. <laughs> and then the following day, the opposition land in Ballina and they all come out to Lismore because they want to get their scope. You know, that the election's coming up. They want to, like, put their spin on things. And, and that was a wild day because we were just going about our business and then all of these like politicians just were walking across the street and they were followed by paparazzi, followed by their entourage. Like I honestly thought we were about to get like swarmed by a mob. It was just like, what is happening? Like (laughs) I think Naomi was told, but she forgot to tell the rest of us. And so it was very shocking. (laughs) And by this point, I remember like the flood hub looked like it was in the car park right next to the building, so right out the front of the flood levee. Yeah. I remember um, some fellow had like somehow gotten on top of the levee and just made his own new marking of Yeah, the, with the pink spray paint. With the pink spray paint yeah. of where the flood had been, which is still sitting there. We had like a few different marquees slash, what are they called? Tarps. It was like a tarp jungle. <laughs> it was, definitely. We'd somehow got power from the building. We had like, but it looked like a war zone. Yeah, there was a local elect- electrician who actually fixed um, the switchboard. And, I mean, we ended up using that switchboard for probably about nine months. And it was <laughs> for a two-story building with like 10 offices on each floor. We're using this like dodged up switchboard because the actual like, you know, yeah like quote real electricians were out doing other stuff trying to get like big corporations switched on and we've just got this piece of plywood like Jenny Jenny's (laughs) at the bottom yeah we had people coming in by this point offering like cooking cooking big pots of food and maybe around there we had what maybe like a hundred volunteers starting to show up a day I would say a lot more than that (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> like I've done events with a hundred people, and it was a lot more than that. I, 
So Arnie Kylie, who, you know, is a local community member here, she lives up at Wollongba and that's 20 minute drive. She said she got to a point where she ended up having to work from home and doing admin from home because she couldn't drive into Lismore. Like there's that many volunteers coming out from Brisbane, Coffs, all of that. And it was just actually blocking up the road. And it was like, if you've ever driven in a, like a city CBD, that's how slow the traffic was going. Like these hundred kilometer zones and people are going at 10 k's an hour. <laughs> yeah. And people at this point from the community had started coming to the flood hub as well to start listing their properties and what they needed doing. And volleys were starting to come out. Yeah. So Lismore is sort of still in the 90s, which I love. So everyone finds out about things through word of mouth and through posters. Like if you go through Lismore Street, like pre-flood and I mean now post-flood, like all the events are still printed on A4 posters and stuck up on notice boards. So, you know, this is sort of, it was a great thing to see because we're not quite on the main street. I mean, we're one block off the main CBD, but people just found out through us through word of mouth. And then it's like, oh, hey, we went down and got a feed at Curry Mail or, you know, someone was volunteering at Curry Mail and they came help clean my house. They would tell their neighbours, their neighbours would tell their neighbours. And so people would just start rocking up. And, you know, I think it was just because of our quick response time um, because, I don't know, black women just get shit done. <laughs> that, like, the community, you know, recognised Curry Mail as you know, essential point because there was the, um, the university, Southern Cross University was the evacuation centre. So that was also known as a hub, but everyone was up there because they were evacuated. So that's somewhere they were staying. And GSAC up in Ganelabar was also an evacuation centre. So that's more where people are staying. Whereas at least here, people just drop in. And so it's not like you have to sit there all day with your trauma. You can come in have a yarn, you can have a feed and then you can go back to your home to do cleaning or you can go back to the evac centre if that's where you're staying. So it was sort of like almost like respite for some of the people and also because it was outdoors. Like it's great. Like on the days that it was sunny, it was beautiful to be out there. Beautiful. It was also hot, humid and it stunk. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it stunk. People don't realise I think sometimes that the flat how like disgusting flood water is. I think it became our new reality because my sister came down to visit about eight weeks after the flood and she was in shock at the town. And it, this had been become something that I'd seen every day that was like, oh, yeah, the smell it is normal. normal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's like, yeah, really hard to like put into words for people who weren't here. Like even now you can walk through the streets and there's still buildings that aren't repaired. Like it's... People think that a natural disaster happens and you clean up and then it's done. Whereas like the recovery actually takes years. Yeah. Like my space for my shop has only got electricians going in now. Like the wait time for tradies is so long. And, you know, a lot of these tradies working in the community now, a year later, are people who have relocated here just to do this work. Because they've been signed on to um, companies who've said, you've got work here for three years. Like, they've got guaranteed work of repairing these businesses, repairing people's homes. Like, I live in, 
East Lismore at the moment. I've moved since the flood and East Lismore is a massive rental community. And so on our block, because we're out of the flood, there's, um, you know, everyone's there living, but where the floodwaters got to, all of those blocks within, you know, two Ks of us are empty houses because, because they're rental houses, the landlords don't necessarily have an appetite to fix these houses. And it's also really hard because, you know, East Lismore has a lot of apartments and units, which, you know, one property can house 12 homes, you know, that's 12 families. There's like 30 people with a house, but they haven't been built because haven't been renovated because they're waiting for body corporate or they're waiting for strata or they're waiting for the individual landlord to fix them up. Whereas suburbs like North and South Lismore, these houses are still half fixed, but you know, everyone's living there and it feels a bit more alive, but that's because those houses are owned by long-term locals who've, you know, been there for three generations. And so what else do you do? Do you either just leave or you move back into your house, even though it has no doors or windows? So, you know, it's hard being on that side of town, but it's also hard being on my side of town where it just feels like a ghost town. Like there's the few houses around me with residents, but then I walk down the street to go to a shop and I'm just walking through empty streets still. Yeah, and I remember at the time there was a lot of people still, you know, some people got evacuated, some people got into pods, there was a lot of people who chose to stay in their house that were, you know, mouldy, flood damaged and, like, this is another thing that the army couldn't do was go into anywhere that had mould in it. Yeah, and anywhere with asbestos as well and a lot of the old houses have asbestos. (laughs) Yeah, and this is like, I remember we ended up just chasing our tails because people would come and they'd say, I need help at my house, but there's asbestos. You call the asbestos number and then they'd be like, oh, well, we can't go in there. Yeah, there was so much red tape that we had to deal with, which it was like, just just do the thing, really. like. And then they'd be sending, they'd, sometimes they'd be like, oh, you should go down to Curry Mail and ask someone there because somebody there will help you. <laughs> and it's like, we're not actually like a disaster relief, like you know, organisation, we're just a newspaper. (laughs) We'd all been put into these roles that we had never done before. Like if I actually wrote up my resume now, it's like, oh, I could be all of these different things. (laughs) Army (laughs) sergeant. Because you were also directing the army boys for a while there. We ended up with two, oh, I don't know the terminology, but like platoons, brigades, I don't know how it works, (laughs) but two groups. So one of them were the infantry and there was like, a fella there leading that and he had 30 men and so they were the ones that could go and do certain inspections on houses but they were yes restricted by certain things they weren't allowed to enter houses if there was asbestos or if there was like a certain type of mold or something so black mold yeah so we ended up creating a bit of a database I mean everything was just on like the whiteboard and like in the you know pen and paper and everything um also just to segue that we also had the reserves team so the reserve team came in and they put us onto a database they were like let's set up some excel sheets like (laughs) you guys are still like (laughs) you know in the 90s (laughs) but it worked yeah yeah it It definitely worked. worked but at least with the excel sheet we were able to you know the list ended up getting so long we ended up almost like with every house 
you know, in Lismore, plus the outer suburbs, plus other communities. So with that, we were then able to send through jobs to the army where we said, hey, this suburb, here's a list of houses and what their requests are. This is their contact. This is who's come in. And so then the infantry could go into that suburb and they could drop off some men at this street and say, hey, you've got these three streets. These are your jobs. And they'd drop off a team of men on another side of the suburb. These are your streets. You can do this. Um, The army was good in the way that they had that list of jobs. And if they saw that the next door neighbor needed help, they would also knock on that door. One thing that really frustrated me about some of the out-of-town volunteers as we said hey go down to this house and see if they need help they would go down and help but then they would come back here to Mal and be like oh what do we do next it's like you could have just like helped the next door neighbor like everyone needs help like <laughs> we can give you a point to start but you know maybe use a bit of common sense and just <laughs> help the next person but I mean it's still still so grateful for everyone who did come out here um But yeah, and so then the other team that we had was the reserves. And so they ended up staying on site at Courier Mail. And so they were able to help with some of the demo that needed to be done in the building. They set up, you know, a lot of temporary infrastructure. So we had wheelchair access into the op shop that we ended up like setting up. Um, I guess shop is the wrong word because everything was free to give away. You know, it was all donations. It was all, you know, take what you need. Um... And then, yeah, so because the reserves come from different skill sets and different, you know, departments of the army, it was good to have them on site because they did have all those different skill sets, whether it was management or whether it was building or whether it was, you know, just organising teams. And so we had one of the fellas, James, who was down at the front of the flood hub with like me and yourself and Ella and Naomi and he was doing a lot of the admin and coordination and he was able to be like, oh, here's a better system because you guys are like just in panic and stress mode. Like you're still in that, you know, flight or flight response. And so, you know, he had that thinking that he could come in and be able to give us better systems, which did really help in the long run. Yeah. They also helped us knock out the, well, not knock out, but they helped us build a ramp at the front of the building so that we could get the medical centre going as well. Yeah. A ramp up to the window. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the window that my housemate originally knocked the window out of. <laughs> yeah, and the front of that ended up becoming a medical centre for a and little while. And I mean, while. that's the crazy thing is, you know, through social media, people were posting, hey, we went down and volunteered with Curry Mail. You know, some of these people are social media influencers and so they were you know able to share to their massive followings and so we had volunteers from Melbourne coming up who were medically trained and who were in the mental health profession and so they were like hey we're qualified as a freelancer to be here to be on site and like our job has also covered us with insurance our job's given us time off we're going to come up here and offer that support to your community and so it's like yeah Curry Mail, the Indigenous newspaper, has a medical centre. <laughs> We've got a community kitchen. We've got, I mean, yourself, I don't know how you know these people. I've got people who own private helicopters to fly out <laughs> medical help to the remote communities cut off with landslides. Very, like, I did not know those people before <laughs> the floods. <laughs> I do not have mates with helicopters. <laughs> but somehow I ended up in, in chats. <laughs> 
<laughs> on Facebook with people who know people with helicopters. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, even just the connections that have come out of it has been amazing. Yeah, seeing the way that the community, it was like just magicians, like people being able to pull things out of thin air. And it was like, all we'd have to say is like, we need a truck. Boom, there's a truck. We need an excavator. Someone would be like, I know someone who has an excavator. Yeah, this is like manifesting 101. (laughs) Yeah. But it was also like, I think we could do so much because we didn't have any of the red tape that all the army and the police and the fireys had so it was like we could just come together as a community and be like we need this we need this let's do this let's do this and it felt like those um you know the police and the army and that were kind of following along mm. I think we, we ended up having the infantry here for almost two weeks it was about 10 days that they were actually on the ground doing stuff once they were finally given clearance to help Lismore. Um, And so there ended up being this nice little flow for a couple of weeks where we would give jobs to the army. They would go and inspect the house. They had connections with the fireys because we had a couple of like local brigades that would come down and have a yarn to us. But the army had connections with some of the other fireys that were getting around town. And so then when we gave the army a job, Army then told the fireys, hey, we've cleared all these houses. Can you come behind us? And they went in with their massive fire brigade hoses and gurneyed out the houses, like with those massive hoses. And then from that list of jobs, we then sent out like the local volunteers or the volunteers that came from out of town to then be like, okay, they've gone through, they've done all the massive stuff. Can you go in with like finer detail and like do a proper clean, help salvage things, you know? And... It did get to the point because we had so many volunteers come through that we started sending them out in groups. And so even if they didn't go to the same house, it was like, okay, we'll wait until there's maybe about four car loads ready to go out and then we'll give them a brief. Because one of the things that people didn't realize is like people are still in shock. And like some of us were in shock for months before we could even like, you know, take it, catch a breath and sit down and just like process things. So Ella was really good with some of those briefs and I mean we ended up jumping on board as well with you know talking to the people saying hey you're about to go into homes where people have lost everything like you know pets some people have lost like family members some people are like really sick from the flood pollution they've lost every possession they've ever owned they've lost you know family ashes photographs sentimental items you know they don't know where their next meal is coming from. And so it was just going in with that sensitivity. And so sending the volunteers out being like, hey, when you are helping people go through their houses, like don't just chuck everything because it's flood damaged. Like if you think you might want to keep this yourself in the future, use that same, you know, um, thinking when you're going through their stuff because they might not be in the right state of mind to be able to make that decision. So it's like, okay, put all their photos out in the sun so they can dry. They might say just chuck them, but, you know, a few months later they'll be like, oh, I wish I had those photos. Um, You know, being able to say, you know, hard wood can get cleaned up and just having those those small things that you don't think about. Yeah. I feel like a lot of the things that get thrown out in the sort of immediate, like, panic after the flood 
And and they all end up in the land too, like Yeah. It's all going to landfill. I mean that's a whole whole other podcast episode <laughs> of like <laughs> all of the pollution and the waste that comes out of these natural disasters. Yeah. And then the consumption afterwards. <laughs> you know, like stuff that was donated that was secondhand and in good quality was great. Stuff that was donated brand new is also great, but so much packaging that's going into the dumps which can't don't have capacity to process it, don't have capacity to process the recycling or any of that. Yeah. And so with that, like, what does custodial care mean to you? Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting topic and I think it really follows on from decolonization, which was a very hot topic the other year, and... I always said for both of those topics, the first thing is like land management. Like we are an island in the Southern Hemisphere and colonization came here and they tried to farm us and they tried to manage us the way that an island in the Northern Hemisphere with a completely different climate was managed and a completely different landscape. And so just the way that land management is done needs to be done completely different because we are in a completely different space on the planet. And so I think adapting, you know, Indigenous practices to manage this land would have made a huge difference because the climates do change. You know, there is cycles between ice ages and periods of drought and, you know, we're on a massive cycle, but we've also got the smaller cycles of wet seasons and dry seasons. But you know, there's a lot of these towns that were built in flood zones and on flood plains and in swamps that were, you know, it's documented in history. They were told not to build there. So it's not about going back in a time machine and changing history because that's not possible. It's about how do we manage this going forward. And so it is, you know, beautiful seeing First Nations women were in the forefront of the recovery from this event. And I mean, there's reports and TED talks about all of this and how Indigenous women are the people who are always preserving the land and it's some crazy statistics. But, yeah, we need to look at alternative measures of protecting our waterways, of managing our waterways. And I know that Revive the Northern Rivers is doing some great work with that, with waterway management. And so it is making those changes because... You know, the government came in, was it about seven years ago? I, I remember the protests that happened in like 2012 through to 2014 of like, we don't want the highway moved. We don't want that highway from Brisbane to Sydney being built. And at the time, it, some of the cases were because it was cutting through rainforest and it was cutting through like nature reserves and everything. But what we saw from this flood is it was built through a floodplain and it actually stopped the water being filtered out to the ocean which ended up you know drowning some of these communities which have never been flooded before because the actual you know a four-lane highway with like all the metal and the cement that's what stopped the water going out to the ocean so that's not custodianship in my mind like <laughs> we need to be able to live here long term and yeah this isn't how you manage the land and so you named, like, it, you know, the, this flood hub was sort of run by First Nations women. What do you feel made made that different than what was happening in other places in the community? Again, red tape. 
<laughs> like everyone was definitely there for the right cause and the right reason. But we had some people come from other flood hubs two weeks in, four weeks in, six weeks in that said, hey, we've set up this system. We've set up this program. We've finally set up how to help the community. You know, can we collaborate with you? It's where have you been for the past month? Where have you been for the last six weeks? And that's all because of red tape. They had to follow systems. They had to, you know, get approval from their managers and from their local government organisations. And it's just these systems aren't efficient in time of, times of crisis. Like if we weren't doing anything, and I mean not to get on our high horses, but I mean if we weren't doing anything, people could be in a lot worse state because some of these local government things didn't do anything for two weeks. Yeah, and I think what I love about this too, like, is that we had that kind of impact working off pen and paper, whiteboards. We didn't have all these, um, you know, systems in place and we ended up getting a lot more fucking done. I didn't even know where the whiteboards came from. Most days we didn't even have a w- w- working marker pen because the kids would run off with them and draw on walls. <laughs> like, <laughs> True. If there's anything that you might want to share with people in other communities, because let's be real, like these natural disasters are going to get bigger, they're going to affect more people, they're going to be touching more communities. So if there is anything that you feel you'd want to share with people listening who you know, might be thinking like, what would I do if this happened in my community? What would that be? If you aren't in the community that is directly impacted, social media is way more powerful than any of us realised. I mean, we saw the, you know, how many people were able to be reached with our um, social media engagement. So, I mean, definitely sharing because sometimes you just sharing something reaches the right person. Um, if you don't necessarily have the resources, you could end up reaching someone who does have the resources. And if you are in those communities, just being able to rely on each other, being able to ask for that help. Like, we, when we did the Wardell drop and we ended up working with them, you know, in the coming weeks and supporting them, that was one thing that really stood out to me is because they were like, oh, we're just cut off. Like, we haven't lost our house. We're just cut off. We don't have power or food for a while, but we're not as in need as the people who've lost their houses. It's like, no, you, you are still in need. Like, you don't have access to food or resources. Like, um, you know, don't be ashamed to ask for help um, because community is going to support you. Like, yes, we're going to help the people who've lost everything, but you have gone through something as traumatic as everyone else. And even though you're impacted differently and your story is different, you know, you're still, I don't know if deserving is the right word, but like, you know, you're still deserving of the help from your community and the support from the people around you. True. True that. Thank you so much, Matilda. Thank you for going back through all these stories and chasing back over like what happened and when and yeah we really only just scratched 
the surface of of what happened but it was so good yarning with you about it all again and sort of reliving some of those moments yeah thanks for holding that space thanks Jalu <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to thank our sponsors, Healthy North Coast, for supporting us to put together these stories so that we may share our experiences with all our community across this nation.